Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. Just want to do some housekeeping stuff, as I usually do during the beginning of the show. We're getting a huge response from our episode on the Kimberly Ray Harbor case. And it was a brutal case, tough to get through. It really was. They really savaged that poor woman for no reason. And I got a few emails that I was kind of hard on the perpetrators advocating for no parole for these people. Go through the details of that case. And I know the perpetrators were kids, basically teenagers. Some were juveniles, some were adults, but damn, I mean... They don't deserve parole. How do you look at that case and say, yeah, you should go walk among free people? It's crazy. I stick to my guns on it. That should have been a death penalty case. They savaged that poor woman one after another, and they knew what was going to happen. The whole case is like a sociological case study. The victim was a drug addict and prostitute, and the kids were from an inner city housing project. So you could delve into the lives of all of these people, and I think there'd be a cornucopia of dysfunction in all of them. But the level of depravity that happened, and it seems to happen when young men get together and there's alcohol, and there was a criminal element to that group there, their moniker there, a street gang, right? The Franklin Field Pistons. I also got some emails saying that Franklin Field is not as bad as it was in the 1990s. Eh, I don't know if I buy that. I think in 2020, five people were shot during a party during our pandemic here. One of them fatally right on the lawn in Franklin Field in the project itself. And I just don't buy that. That housing development has straightened out any at all. And to put all of those poor people in one section, in one little housing development, gives them no opportunity to interact with other people. That's how people get jobs. They interact with people, neighbors, friends, and all that. All your other friends in that development are poor like you. You know, it's difficult. I don't know what the solution is. I don't think grouping poor people together in mass has proven to work. It's been a failure, actually, in terms of policing, right? I don't know what the solution is there, but geez, that was just a horrible case. And man, those kids got what they deserved. I haven't followed up to see who's been released and who's still in prison. I know the guys who got life sentences and 40 to 60 years are still in the joint, but I don't know. Some of them are out and they're walking around among us. On another note, I think you've probably noticed that I've discontinued commercials on the show at this point. I'm looking for other ways to monetize the podcast. I'm actually just looking to get back the money I put out to send this out to production and all that. But 
We're thinking of t-shirts, maybe a Patreon, sweatshirts, some clothing line, all that. So I'll keep you posted on that as we go. But for today's episode, you got to jump back with me into the time machine to 1978. On the radio, you would have heard, guys, you're the one that I want from the movie Grease. Three times a lady by the Commodores and Jimmy Carter. Perhaps America's worst president was in the second to last year of his presidency, as I remember. And I think the presidential race was ramping up against Ronald Reagan. It was kind of like today. There is a lot of inflation, high unemployment. And I believe President Carter said in a speech in that year that there was a national malaise. I guess he didn't understand that his policies put us in that malaise, but it would take Ronald Reagan to get us out of it. But he wouldn't take office until 1980. So what was going on here was Boston was a completely different city at the time. There was a ton of organized crime in the city. I don't know where we are with organized crime in the city today, who handles the rackets and all that. It's been kind of under the radar. I think the police are more on top of it. The FBI is more on top of it. But I got a little bit of a problem with the FBI in Boston. They were as corrupt as Whitey Bulger and his organization was. But we'll get to that on another episode pretty soon. So this was a crime that would shock the consciousness of the city of Boston and the state of Massachusetts, really. And due to the large number of victims, it attracted national news as well. And I'm talking about the Black Friars Massacre of June 28th, 1978 on Summer Street in Boston, Massachusetts. So the Black Friars Pub was located at 105 Summer Street in Boston. It's an area close to South Station, but if you want to further orientate yourself, it was right near the Lollipop Building. And this is kind of funny. It was kind of like a sculpture, this lollipop building, right? And when the wind would blow, these lollipops would turn. It seemed to be kind of iconic at the time. Looking back, it's kind of lame, actually. But that's where it was, the lollipop building. And during the daytime, it's downtown Boston, so it's incredibly busy. But after five, that section of the city kind of clears out because there's just not much to do. There's a few bars and restaurants in that area, but you'd have to go further towards downtown for nightlife or over to Faneuil Hall for more action. And it wasn't really patrolled that much. It was kind of on the outskirts of the combat zone, probably three, four blocks away from the combat zone. And I just want to give a tip of the hat to one of my researchers, Fitz, Fitz sends in a lot of accurate information that keeps me from having to do it myself, and I trust his judgment, but he's the one who told me it was right near the lollipop building, and that kind of gave me a chuckle. Thanks, Fitz. I appreciate it. So to call Blackfriars Pub a hole in the wall is doing a disservice to holes in the wall bars, right? It was downtrodden, dark, grimy, and it was infested with members of organized crime made members of the Italian mob, the Winter Hill Gang, and assorted hangers-on. Men, women, everything. But people were in and out of this place, and it was not a straight joint, okay? Everybody involved in this bar was connected to organized crime in some way. Some form of fashion, 
they were gangsters. Blackfriars had recently undergone an expansion, I believe, to include like a dance floor restaurant type of area. I don't know if they took over property that was next door or what, but there was some disagreement among the owners. And I believe one of the owners left because of the dispute. This one owner did not want to expand like that. But the other owner, Vincent Solomonte, S-O-L-M-O-N-T-E, he was 35 and connected to organized crime or disorganized crime, as we used to call it in Boston, in several different ways. He owned a few restaurants and one down by what is now the Seaport, which was actually, I think it was called Vincent's, and it was pretty upscale, if I remember correctly. But this guy, Solomonte, had his hands in a lot of pies, and none of them were good. None of them were legitimate. So from the previous night, the cleaning guy, he enters the Blackfriars pub, as he usually does, about 4 a.m., so he's going to clean up from the previous night. And he does that, and he starts in the upstairs area and cleans all the way through. And this takes about four and a half hours, I guess, before he gets to the basement office. And once he gets in the basement office, it's a horror show. It's an absolute bloodbath. And this guy loses it. This guy was a janitor, and he was legitimate, I think, on some level. But don't forget, everybody had a part-time legitimate job and they did illegal things on the side. It was a different time in Boston and it wasn't frowned upon to do other things that were maybe outside of the law, at least not like it is today. But I've got no information on the janitor doing anything but cleaning up that night. So he cleans up the whole bar and ends up now in the basement. It's dark, dingy, and dank. So what the janitor sees, right, is five bodies butchered. It looks like they're butchered, but it would come to light later that they had been shotgunned and shot with a twenty-five caliber. It was reported that some heads were missing. Some people were scalped due to the shotgun blasts. It would indicate more than one robber or one intruder. So naturally, this guy calls the police, and there is some evidence in the public record that when the patrolman got there to investigate, the dispatch asked them, how many ambulances are you going to need? And he says, we're going to need zero ambulance. Everybody's gone. Five people dead in this nasty basement. And it was a bloody scene. I don't think people really know what a shotgun does to the human body. And it was used multiple times. It was believed to be a sawed off shotgun so they could carry it into the place. And I think there was some ballistics that indicated that it was not a full-length shotgun. But a twenty-five caliber gun was also used. And whatever happened, somebody just started shooting. The cops knew that this was not like a maniac coming in and killing people randomly. They knew this was a targeted hit or robbery. And they knew this just because of the victims. And so the investigation ramps up relatively quickly. They identify all the victims, and I'm going to tell you all about those guys, but it's strange what is found. Like $15,000 in cash was found in an unopened safe. Significant or relatively significant quantities of marijuana and cocaine were found within the office where the bodies were found. So 
the police began to speculate that this may have been a straight hit, but it would come to light later that that's probably not the case. These guys were looking for money or cocaine. I think if this was going to be a hit, not all five people would have been murdered. They would have waited until the actual targets were by themselves or in a smaller group. To kill five people is going to bring a ton of heat on whatever organization did this, whatever individuals did it, right? But you got to kind of think of the times. Cocaine was relatively new on the scene and disco was kind of big, right? In the Blackfriars pub window, it advertises itself as an after-work disco. And along with disco went cocaine. Powdered cocaine was getting ready to explode. And the mafia in its various forms in Boston was making a ton of money off of it. The DEA hadn't ramped up their interdiction efforts as much as they would in the 1980s. So this was kind of like free money for these gangsters. And the markup on cocaine was astronomical. You'd buy a few kilos in Miami and bring it up to Boston, and you'd probably triple or quadruple the price. And that's before cutting it, making more of it. So in essence, this was like a second prohibition. And remember what happened with the first prohibition with alcohol. It created organized crime on a large scale in the United States. And that's what was happening with cocaine. But let's get to the victims. I already told you a little bit about Vincent Salamonte, age 35. He had a few restaurants and was always hurting for money. That's what people said. But he was in the rackets. He was down with the Winter Hill Gang. And I don't know if he was down with the North End, the Italian Mafia. But he was definitely at least a fringe player in organized crime. He was 35 and was from Somerville, I believe. Again, Peter Miroth, 31, of Jamaica Plain. Freddie Del Vega, 34, of Somerville. Charles Magarian, 37, of North Andover, Mass. And John Jack Kelly. John Jack Kelly has got to be the craziest victim here. He had been on television news. He was an investigative reporter for, I believe it was Channel 7, WLVI at the time. Channel 7 in Boston. And he was an excellent reporter. But he got into some beef with his boss and ended up getting fired. But he had started cultivating these underworld contacts. And the Boston police had started seeing him at all these places of ill repute, as they'd say. At least 25 times, Kelly had been seen with members of organized crime. And so his career had taken kind of a pitfall, but he was making kind of a comeback. He had just been hired to be an independent producer, I believe to Channel 56 in Boston. It was kind of an independent station, but he was going to be producing investigative reporting stories. And he enjoyed being amongst gangsters. And he used to say, if you want to write a story about the police, make friends with the police. If you want to make a story about gangsters, make friends with the gangsters. And that's exactly what he did. So I don't remember which one of these victims was identified as a world-class, it's kind of strange, a world-class backgammon player, right? And they played backgammon for money in those days. So 
it was believed that they were playing backgammon for money down in the office after the bar had closed about 2 a.m. And those people down there were gambling, right? It was kind of like a gambling den. So they're doing their thing. And that's when these intruders or people who are already there, nobody knows. There's so many gangsters in and out of this place, the Black Friars, that it would have been impossible to tell which one of these gangsters was involved or if they were involved at all. I think what happened in this case as the investigation ramped up, there was too many suspects, right? And this was a time before DNA and all this. And some people in the city said at the time that once the police found out exactly who was involved, who were the victims, they weren't really ramped up. They weren't jazzed to solve this case because... I got to tell you, at the time, the Boston police and the state police were largely in the pocket of the Winter Hill Gang and the Italian Mafia out of the North End. It's just a fact. I don't really remember this case. I was pretty young at the time. I think I was 10 years old, so my mind was elsewhere. But in terms of news coverage, this was wall to wall because Boston could be a violent place, and everybody knew there was organized crime, and you didn't cross them. But to have multiple murders like this, people literally and rightfully compared it to the Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago during the Al Capone days, and I believe that's accurate. And people outside the city, they didn't understand the dynamics of how Boston worked, and so they're shocked. You're out in Springfield, you're like, my God. Five people shot in the basement in Boston. What the hell's going on? But the police knew. They knew that this was organized crime. So were they amped up to solve it like they would be if it was just a Burger King with some employees killed? Probably not. I think they determined that these people were involved in crime and they accepted the risk. But the investigation did ramp up pretty quickly. But don't forget, again, no DNA in those days forensics in totality was in its infancy, really. Also, again, there were so many suspects in this case almost immediately, and they're major league organized crime figures. There's James Whitey Bulger. I don't think he ever set foot in that place, but his partner, Stephen the Rifleman Fleming, did, and they were all connected. They were also all connected to John Moderano's bar in the South End called The Chandler, I believe was the name of it. It was the unofficial headquarters of the Winter Hill Gang, and that's where they all hung out. And when the heat started being put on Chandler's, they moved over to Black Friars, and they'd go back and forth. So there was all these major league players coming and going. It was basically a host of murderers coming in and out of this bar. So which one of them pulled the trigger in the basement? So it was rumored, and I think it may have been discussed later at trial, the motive of this thing was to steal some cocaine. There was two real theories on this case, that this was a straight-out organized crime assassination, basically a hit, and the other was this was a robbery. Some police discounted the robbery theory because there was 15 grand left in an unopened safe. There was relatively large quantity of cocaine and some marijuana around. So they didn't think robbery, but what came to light later, at least on the street was, and perhaps in court, I don't have the court record on this, 
but the motivation was that there was $300,000 worth of cocaine in the office that was being controlled by the owner, Salamante, right? So the value of the cocaine in today's money is $1.2 million. So if you were there and you were ready to steal $1.2 million worth of cocaine and you had just blasted five people with a shotgun, you might want to just take the cocaine and get the F out of Dodge, right? So that's what some of the cops believed happened. And this is the theory I prescribed to. So I believe that's what happened because there's some reports that the cocaine was stolen and then was placed on the street for sale within four hours. And the police tracked this information. Now, in terms of the public record, there's not a lot in the record itself about the investigation and the court information. They did end up making two arrests in this case, and I'll tell you about it as we go. But there's not much in terms of the investigative process. I don't know how they got on to these two guys they arrested. The two guys they arrested were stone-cold organized crime figures, and that stands to reason in this case, I think. And it kind of shores up the theory of robbery over execution, I think, right? One of the things that this case brings to mind of that time, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s in Boston is how absolutely corrupt it was and intertwined. Every police agency, for the most part, was contaminated by organized crime. The FBI was compromised by James Whitey Bulger. The state police were compromised by Stephen Flemmy. The Boston police were totally on the pad. I'm sorry, they were. And that's how it went. So two suspects were arrested relatively quickly. The problem is, I can't find any evidence against these guys. But the people who were arrested were Robert Italiano and William Irati. And I believe these two individuals were connected to the Italian faction of organized crime in the North End, who also served Raymond Patriarca's organization out of Rhode Island. So these two were arrested on July 12, 1978. They go to trial relatively quick thereafter. It just seems like the police were trying to make a pinch on the case, and they weren't worried about a conviction. But again, I don't know what even gave them probable cause to arrest. I can't really find anything on it. But these two guys, Italiano and Arati, were major organized crime players. And like I said, they were connected, for the most part, to the North End. And I believe Arati was a made member of organized crime. I don't know about Italiano, but I believe they were main members. But that doesn't mean they don't work with Winter Hill, right? And Winter Hill is the gang Matarano, Whitey Bulger, and Stevie Fleming. And they all kind of work together, right? So it's hard to say who was doing what for whom and when. So these two guys were convicted after only seven hours. The jury deliberated for seven hours and came back with not guilty. You know, just by all outward appearances, and I don't have any court information on it, it had to be the worst prosecuted case in Massachusetts history, or at least one of them, right? 
I think the Boston police were under tremendous pressure to make an arrest, and they did, and they were hoping, praying, that with the coming summer, this would disappear from the news cycle. It was just gangsters killing gangsters after all. And I believe that was kind of the strategy. And these two guys got a not guilty on it. It was said that Stevie Flemmy, the rifleman from the Winter Hill Gang, was either there that night. He was dating a waitress. And another guy, another friend of theirs, Nicholas Fema, another heavyweight mobster, was dating another waitress there. And it's rumored that these two waitresses told Flemmy and FEMA that there was a cocaine deal that was going to go down there or was going to be stored there that night. And Flemmy was friends with Solomonte, but would these guys kill a friend for $1.2 million in today's money? You bet your ass they would. And all these guys were suspects, right? They didn't bother bringing them in for questioning. You're not going to bring in Whitey Bulger for questioning. You're not going to get anything from them. But there were several suspects, Whitey Bulger and the entire Winter Hill gang, and John Moderano, who was killing people all over town, and everybody knew it. So I don't know if Whitey Bulger was involved in this or not, but just after this happened, Solomonte had a business partner He had several businesses, but in one of these incarnations, he was a partner with a guy by the name of Berenson. And Whitey goes to Berenson, but just before he makes that visit, Whitey Bulger goes to his corrupt FBI agent, John Conley, and says, hey, get me the photographs from the Blackfriars homicide. And John Conley, being a member of Winter Hill and an FBI agent, does just that. He gives Whitey Bulger a packet, and Bulger brings this packet to Berenson and says, listen, you're in business with Solomonte. He owes the hill 60 Gs, and now that debt is on you. And when Berenson balks at paying his partner's debt, why should he? It's not his debt, right? Bulger pulls out the photographs, and they're brutal. Heads were removed by these shotguns, make no mistake. He lays these photographs down, provided to him by the FBI, and says, I did this, you're going to pay me, or you're next, do you understand? Berenson craps himself, not literally, but pays the money quickly. Bulger would later be recorded saying it was the easiest money he ever made. I kind of don't think Bulger was actually involved in that. Maybe Stevie Flemmy on some end. Because the story goes that the two waitresses that Nikki Fema and Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy were dating were told not to go into the bar that night. So there's connections to Winter Hill all over the place. Irati was connected to the North End. Again, there's so many gangsters involved. Even if these two guys took a conviction... I believe on appeal, you'd have a murderer's row, a literal murderer's row of people to point the finger at here. So one of the other suspects, people who say on the street that he actually did this homicide was Nicholas Fema. And he was a stone cold killer who had ties both to the North End and the Winter Hill Gang. 
FEMA liked to use a sawed-off shotgun. That's one of the reasons people point to him. And he had those connections to James Whitey Bulger and Rifleman Flemmy, right? So he was also dating one of the waitresses in the establishment. And supposedly, reportedly, they were told not to go in that night, the night of the massacre. So it is quite possible that he was involved, but... He was a stone-cold gangster, and I believe he was shot in the head as he was trying to shake down somebody else in East Boston a few years later, many years later. One of the reasons people point to Nicky Fema is Whitey Bulger directed his FBI handler, who was actually a member of the gang, John Conley, to put in a report that Fema was not involved in the Blackfriar massacre because... Whitey Bulger didn't want the heat on his organization, right? So the FBI would start looking in other locations rather than looking to solve the Black Friar massacre through surveillance on his operation, you dig? And this was at a time when Whitey had a use for Nikki Fema. They became disconnected. They were kind of enemies at the end. And Whitey Bulger actually kicked him out of the Winter Hill gang because he said he was just a fat slob. He was like well over six feet tall, over 250 pounds. Whitey Bulger was a fitness fanatic. And when he kicked him out of the Winter Hill gang, he had John Conley write another entry, another report. I think they call them 302s in FBI parlance. He had him write another 302 saying that Nicky Fema was involved. He wielded the shotgun at the Blackfriars massacre. So who knows, right? Like I say, it's a murderer's row, a revolving door of homicidal maniacs in Boston that could be attributed to the Blackfriars massacre. The other suspect, Robert Italiano, was kind of a knockaround guy. He did scores. That means he did robberies and all this other stuff. And he was connected to the North End. But again, the North End was kind of the pinnacle. Under that is Winter Hill. And they all kicked up to the North End. And North End kicked up to Rhode Island. That's how it was in Boston at the time. So I don't exactly know what ended up happening to Robert Italiano. But William Arati, again, stole cold gangster. He was convicted of selling drugs in 87 and ultimately turned state's evidence on Stevie Flemmy and later Whitey Bulger. Naturally, he remained incredulous, saying he never did it, he wasn't there, he had alibi witnesses and all this nonsense. But he ultimately passed away, I believe, in 2001 in East Boston, and he was a free man by that time. So I don't know. I don't really know what happened here again. There's too many suspects, and I don't think the police were super interested in sifting through all of these suspects, you want to know why? Because at a certain point, the finger gets pointed back at the police department, right? So they're not looking to stir up this hornet's nest. And the case to this day is still listed as unsolved. I'm sorry, guys, I don't have much info in the way of court proceedings on this one. There's not much out there. I think as soon as the cops made the arrest in this case, Boston and the rest of Massachusetts moved on. They knew it was organized crime, and this is what organized crime does. Naturally, I think today you would have gotten a better investigation 
and probably a better result as well. But you have to think back at how corrupt law enforcement was in those days. I don't think it's like that anymore, but it was wholly corrupt. There was elements of corruption in each agency, the FBI. I'd say that office, the Boston office, wholly corrupt. The Boston police, corrupt, at least in terms of people who investigated organized crime. And the state police, we know that Stephen the Rifleman Fleming had several contacts in there, and some of them were in the intelligence unit. I don't know what happened there. I think Nikki FEMA would have a lot of explaining to do, but he was shot to death. I think I mentioned this previously, but he was shot to death December 16th, 1983, when he was trying to shake down an auto parts dealer or some type of garage in East Boston. I guess the guy just got sick of it, walked up behind him and shot him in the head. They tried to frame this as uh, FEMA was coming in to rob the place, but the evidence showed that Nicky Femer at that time was just sitting down at a desk and the guy came up behind him and shot him in the head. So I think we all know what happened to Whitey Bulger. He went on the lam, I think in 94 and stayed that way for quite some time. He went to jail and was beaten to death by another inmate in federal prison. Stevie Flemmy was captured early. He got the warning from FBI agent John Conley to hit the bricks and run away. He refused to do so. It was placed in handcuffs hours later. He eventually rolled on all of his friends, and everybody knew that Stevie and Whitey were total rats in the gangster world. You would think in the mop-up of all this corruption, somebody would reopen the Blackfriars Massacre case and take a look at it. That's never happened, guys. It's still listed as unsolved. I'm sure the majority of those five victims didn't deserve what they got. They were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I bet they didn't know there was over a million dollars in today's money in cocaine lying around there as they're playing backgammon or whatever the hell they were doing. They were gambling. I don't think they deserve that. They don't deserve to be shotgunned to death. And the scene was just so bloody. But again, listed as unsolved, deserves a different look, another look. Will it get one? No, not in this city. All right, guys, that's Boston Confidential. I'm going to leave you there. See you on the flip side, and we'll get on to the next one. 